Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Chris Evans here. Happy belated New Year and welcome to the first edition of the Best of the Breakfast Show podcast. Uh, 2021 with Sky from Virgin Radio. Coming up, Virgin Radio's shiny new host, the one and only Graham Norton, tells us what to expect from his shiny new radio show, the Graham Norton Radio Show, which you can hear every Saturday and Sunday between 9.30 and 12.30 here on Virgin Radio. Author, podcaster, presenter and so much more, the wonderful Fern Cotton dishes out wisdom from her new book, Speak Your Truth. Superstar actress Jenna Coleman gets us all excited for her seductive and shocking new BBC One series, The Serpent. All episodes available now via the BBC iPlayer. And the up-and-coming acting excellence of Kingsley Benadire tells the tale of playing Malcolm X in the incredible new Amazon movie One Night in Miami. All of that and loads more still to come. Now, Dapper Dave, tell us who's first. The wait is almost over. Your Saturdays and Sundays are about to go stratospheric. His weekend shows start tomorrow on Virgin Radio at 9.30am. So please welcome the man that'll be making your weekends a whole lot more wonderful in his own inimitable way. It's Virgin Radio's very own Graham Norton. Yes! <laughs> it's a lovely day! <laughs> Graham, how cool is this, man? Um, well, it's cool. It's also intimidating because I'm thinking, you know it's just me talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's all the show is. It's just me, some records of me talking. I feel like people people are going to go, I'm going to heal the sick. I'm going to... <laughs> you are, but you are. You have magical powers. You have magical radio superpowers. I can't wait. Um, I know what you mean because it's a radio show. And it, yeah, you know, the, it's not, there's it's only not, so much you can do. Yeah, it's not like a West End production or a Hollywood movie or a brand new sort of trilogy or a brand new kind of mega franchise, you know, or Netflix special or anything like that. But as a listener, I am genuinely really looking forward to having you on my radio, in my life, on Saturdays, and particularly on Sundays, for some reason. I'm well, I'm looking forward to we did it. We did a little kind of dummy run-through in here the other night, and uh, it's fun. I like this. <laughs> I really like it. I think the first couple of weekends will just be me talking about the room, mm. the view. <laughs> I've done all that. I've heard all that before. <laughs> But you can't stop. You like you kind of think this must be so boring to a listener, and yet you can't stop yourself. But I'll try. I'll try to wean myself off. But that's probably about the first two weeks. So tell us, because so why? How come you were excited about the dummy run? How? Because I know, I know, I know what you mean. But just convey well, it, that to the well, listeners. Well, it's you're coming into this studio. I, you know, it's a very see. You know, it's all bells and whistles, fancy lights and things, and and also here's my confession. Come on, uh, at the radio too. Yes, I was never allowed. I was never given. In permission to touch a button I would just you know I had kind of gloves on and I would just stand you know sit there and talk and so everything happened around me but here I'm pushing some buttons which 
it's pathetic how excited that makes me. It's <laughs> it's, it's also frightening because you know that thing when you've learned to drive, you pass your test, yes. and then you're on the motorway, and you're like, this isn't illegal, but it should be, <laughs> because I have no idea what I'm doing. It's so it's a bit like that. It's like, okay, this is actually on air. I'm really doing this. So we'll see how we get on. There might be a few glitches along the way. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So so what's going to happen on the show, similar to, to the old place on Saturdays? It's really similar. It's right. me doing a bit of gabbing. Uh, my old mucker, Maria McCurlin, will be here. We'll have some problems. We've got a few guests. Uh, tomorrow we've got uh, Faye Ripley and Ralph Little and lots of good music. And, I just, you know, I think it's a jolly listen for a Saturday morning and a Sunday. Yeah, and because you got the Sunday show as well, you know, it, it is a sort of two-parter, isn't it? Because there was the famous book, which I'm a huge fan of. I reread it over the Christmas period. Tim Ferriss' The Four Hour Work Week. Now we've got Graham up to seven. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, and it's work in progress. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I must say, I, even I keep forgetting about the Sunday. I hope I show up. I was in the supermarket yesterday and I was looking at avocados thinking, oh, that'd be nice on Sunday. Mo- oh, no. No. <laughs> I, I won't be doing that, will I? I will not be chopping up avocados. And so how will Sunday differ? Again, you know, we're not talking any kind of, you know, um, Van Gogh masterpiece here, but <laughs> it is just the radio show. But I'm glad gonna... you're managing people's expectations. It's, no, because it's going to be fantastic. But uh, how, how will Sunday differ in, in sort of mood and feel? I think well we'll I think we'll kind of take it from the listeners because I haven't done Sunday before. Now in my head, I think you're a little more city down yes. on a Sunday. Yes, yes, yes. You're a little bit mellower on a Sunday. Mm. That's my feeling. Right. Um, because I think Saturday is the day you do stuff. You're you know you're buying things. You're ferrying the kids somewhere. Mind you, at the moment you're probably not. But yeah. yeah in fact, but every, it, every day is quite city down. But that'll be the same energy will be there on a Saturday morning. I would imagine. I would, have thought, I would have thought so. And then uh, Sunday, I think the main thing will be maybe the music might be a bit more mellow on a Sunday yeah. and I might be <laughs> a bit more <laughs> mellow on a Sunday. Uh, I don't know what I sound like on a Sunday, so we'll That's find interesting. out. Well, look, well for, for that, for that conversation, let's see Saturday nights in the Norton House. So so what do you usually do on a Saturday night? Because that's going to affect your Sunday. Well, it's it? di- I mean, of course, all bets are off because Saturday nights aren't Saturday nights what anymore. What would you usually do? Um, I suppose normally on a Saturday night, I would be out. I but, but like for a dinner or something, not like I would be bonkers. So, so, uh, but at the moment, like everyone else, it's. I, I suppose what the difference is that I won't watch the seventh and eighth episode of something. Right. <laughs> I'll go to bed. That's right. the plan. Okay. Uh, I, uh, on a Saturday, you kind of think, oh, I'll just finish this series because I, I don't have to be up. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and what yeah. time might you get up for a show at half nine on a Sunday, do you think? All, all right, Chris. <laughs> Well, you, will you have a Ten walk? Ten to or? nine? Uh, no, I, I think tomorrow, tomorrow, since you asked, I'll now tell you. Yeah. Uh, I think tomorrow I'll get up about eight, I think. Right. And then, oh, no, no, I'll get up about half seven. So half seven. Half seven. And then I'll leave the house about half eight. And then I should be here just before nine. Well, no, I'll be here about... Ten to nine, quarter to nine, right? And and then it'll happen it's so at cool. half past the nine. It's so cool! I'm so I'm so. so um, happy. And also, can this building I for is downstairs. I said I said to you off air. It looks like I've died. It's 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 the Graham Norton mausoleum. Either it's, that, either that, I'm it's not, my own country. It looks amazing. So what, we have these big screens here, all, all all throughout the building on the, uh, the the news tower here, all the way up all the stairs, every floor, when the lifts open, you have these big sort of pixelated screens, and you have have loads of them in reception. If you walk past and you go for between Borough Market and uh, London Bridge uh, train station, 
You can see them, and Graham's face is all over them today. It's like it's like you were on a su- Sunset Strip, and you've just got a new movie coming out. No, it's that it, kind is, of thing. it is. I do feel. I do. If you I look do, great. I feel like Barry photos. Manilow in Vegas or something. It's very, it's very exciting. Also, when you you know when you present your pass to the infrared um, thing. Yes. Yes. Do you know that that your pass? There's an algorithm that tells something somewhere who you are and where you're going. And between you going through the automated barrier, a lift will come down for you. And this is for everybody who works in the building, all three and a half thousand people, because it knows where you work and it will take you there. Wow. Come on. Oh, and yes. apparently executive bathrooms. That's what I've heard. I've heard executive bathrooms. That's, that's a myth. <laughs> they knew that would swing it for him. <laughs> I'm not signing that contract. Get the contract signed now. <laughs> the best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. She's the podcasting go-to guru that created her very own happy place empire. Her latest life-enhancing book, Speak Your Truth, is out today. And here to tell us more, loud and proud, is someone that will not be silenced. It's the excellent Fern Cotton. Good morning, Fern. <laughs> Morning, everyone. How, how are, are you? you? Very well. How are you? Good. Yeah, usual sort of anticipation of releasing a book, but, you know, all OK. How many books in are you now, Fern? Uh, mm, one, two, three, four, I don't know, ten, seven, eight. But these are including kids' books, cookbooks as well. It's pretty impressive, though, and you can't, you don't know because it's been quite a few. There have been so many. Uh, <laughs> you go, oh, I think maybe into double figures now. Uh, well, Fern, congratulations. Yeah. Speak your truth. Now, tell us, tell us about the story from which, whence this story came. And it's, it's you not losing your voice, but not being able to speak. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, well, I knew I needed to write another book. So I was kind of thinking, oh, God, what am I going to write about now? And at this point, this was about a year ago, my voice just sort of fell apart. I, I, I was sort of doing a bunch of voiceover work and and TV stuff, and my voice just kind of went. So I saw a throat specialist who put a little camera down my nose and discovered quite a sizable cyst on my vocal cords. So I I kind of got in the cab after that, knowing there was an operation looming, and thought, this is really curious. Like, why why is it there on my body? What is it about my, my throat that I need to look at here? And that kind of led me down a path of exploration to look into how we use our voice and how we speak and if we speak truthfully or if we're swallowing down words or saying things that we know aren't necessarily true to to who we are so that that's the sort of crux of the book essentially and so that that silence almost like a sort of um involuntary silent retreat um what Mm. what did you find you know as well as other than the thoughts of maybe you know uh, getting this together and composing a book from it um what what kind of things did you have simmering that you couldn't couldn't get out there, couldn't couldn't sort of release yourself from and therefore took hold of you and you thought, hang on a minute, these are in there and they're probably in there for a while and what I usually do is just talk a lot and then that relieves a bit of the pressure but that yeah. wasn't an option this time. No, you're right. I think, you know, if you are a communicator or, you know, just anybody really talking and discussing things, whether it's healthily or in a more negative light, is a big distraction rather than actually sitting with stuff and sitting with feelings and sitting with concerns and stuff you're ruminating on so I I did have to kind of sit with a lot of stuff and because I was thinking about this subject matter I think I realized how often I've not been honest I've not been honest with myself and I've really not been honest with others because I've been scared of either rejection or getting in trouble saying something wrong or being you know just kind of thought of in a way that I, I don't believe represents me so I think you know I probably had it 
the pressure piled on slightly more like you because people are listening to you and dissecting what you're saying. But it, it counts for everybody, you know. Often we'll say yes when really we mean no. Often we won't follow what our gut says because we're so busy worrying about what everybody else thinks about us. It's tiny things every day that, that we're dealing with, but it's powerful, I think, when you start really doing what feels right to you and saying what feels right to you. I think it's it's really potent. It's funny, isn't it? Because not telling the truth is a common human trait. In fact, it's almost natural to us to not yeah. tell the truth. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's not the, yeah. Are you lying or are you just not telling the truth? Have you suppressed the truth to such an extent that you don't know what it is anymore yeah. anyway? Or you've at least That's suppressed it, it so, so it cannot be heard unless you're not able to speak for two weeks? Which is, yeah, I, yeah, this isn't this isn't like lying is such a different thing. Yeah. Lying is when you know you're saying something to cover up or to cheat or get out of something. But I think not telling the truth is an everyday occurrence because, you know, even if someone goes to you, oh, my God, do you remember that that scene in The Godfather? And you've never seen like that classic. You go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you've, <laughs> you've not seen it. But you're too scared to, to admit that, that you haven't seen it. It's silly stuff every day. And I think as soon as we get comfy with who we are, what we're about and what, what we want to say. It's mm. really liberating. Yeah, well, it is really liberating. But as with many things that you've discussed in your books, all brilliantly, you know, it's it's once once the cat's out of the bag, that's only the beginning of, of the process, isn't it? So it's whether yeah. people want to take that step. You know, is it is it worth the trouble? What's been your experience? I think always nearly yes. Like none of this is easy. It's not like, yes, I spoke my truth and then I was liberated. I think it is, there is a sort of a transition. It's a practice and there's a transitional period, you know, where you kind of get comfy with it and other people around you get comfy with your life choices. You know, we're talking about big stuff as well. Like, you know, what you want to do career wise, your, you know, sexuality, who you want to hang out with, who you want to associate with, what beliefs you have, what you want to align with. This is like, big juicy stuff and it's not going to please everybody so I think it is incremental and you've just got to kind of slowly do it and get comfy with it but I think nearly always yes it's better than swallowing words suppressing what you know you're about because that just causes mental stress physical tension you know feeling irritable and, and angry about life I think it's better to just sort of incrementally test the waters and, and give it a go. Well, Fern, well done. Uh, how's your day looking today with all the promo for this? Oh, God. Well, look, I'm trying to juggle that and homeschooling two kids. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, it's a blimmin' nightmare. I, I literally was, like, about to cry last night thinking about all this. It's right. just bonkers. Like, how us parents are meant to deal with this, I don't know. But I'm going to give it my best shot. All right, well, this too will end, Fern. You know that. This too, This too will end. Great. Lovely to talk to you again, Fern. Thank you, Chris. Big love. Big love to you. Fern Cotton is a tireless seeker of the truth. This is a beautiful book, says Elizabeth Gilbert on the front cover. Fern Cotton, speak your truth, connecting with your inner truth and learning to find your inner voice is out today. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. She's venerable in Victoria, delightful in Doctor Who and now French in her new show. The darkly delicious series The Serpent continues this Sunday at 9pm on BBC One. So let's say bonjour madame to the lady that always snake charms us. It's the brilliant Jenna Coleman. All right, Jenna. Good morning. Your new show is so good, Jenna. Oh, thank you. It really is. It really is. Because I, sometimes when we have guests on, I watch shows on fast forward because, you know, I've only, there are only so many hours in the day and you can tell when a show has been stretched and with yours, 
you can't watch it on fast forward because so much happens all the time. I mean, it's quite a simple story, but there's so much in it, so much detail. Um, you can fill in the gaps in a moment or two, but briefly, uh, an overview of this, everyone. If you haven't seen it yet or even heard of it, as I hadn't until I knew Jenna was coming on the show, um, The Serpent is an eight-part series. It's all available on the BBC iPlayer now. All episodes available on demand if you want to binge it over the next few weeks. Um, and stylized-wise, it's a cross between, or it's, it's a sort of, it has the kind of ingredients, the kind of look, the kind of smell, the kind of feel, the kind of vibe, the kind of groove uh, of Narcos, if you are familiar with that, or Boardwalk Empire, or American um, Hustle. It's got that kind of thing going on, a bit of Salvador going on there. But uh, Jenna, you, you, you pitch it to us as if we were going to buy it from you. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, I love that description. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an eight part series about the real life story of um, Charles Sabrage, who was a well, he's now in jail um, for murder, um, and it's 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 about the hippies and the hippie trail in the 1970s and the people who come into contact with him, and he used to drug the hippies and take their money. Um, and then we also followed the story of Herman Nippenberg, a Dutch diplomat, um, who tracks him down. Tell us about your character. Tell us about the, the Frenchness of her. And now you, I'm understanding. And oh, uh, how they get Stevenage or wherever it is to look like Paris, Egypt and everywhere else in six days because they had to because of lockdown. Yeah, I mean, I have to say there is such a, it feels like such a kind of momentous occasion because I, I feel like, there were so many points where we thought this is never going to make it to screen. Like it was, there were so many obstacles that came in, in the way. Um, and we began filming in August, 2019. So it's kind of stretched over a period of 13 months to shoot. Um, yeah. And we had to, uh, in lockdown, obviously as, as the virus came in, we got flown back from Bangkok with, with a, a few hours notice and then picked up the rest of the story in Tring which acted as Paris, Bombay, Karachi, um, and many other locations that kind of work seamlessly on screen. And you can't so. tell. So, you know, I mean, I know you, you obviously had fun going to those far-flung places, but, you know, <laughs> these SFX people and the set builders, they, they could be too good at their jobs bearing the future in mind. Yeah, I mean, we've got this amazing um, set designer called Francois who did Carlos, actually, there's an amazing um, series, I think it's on Amazon, called Carlos about uh, that guy in the 1970s. Um, so we had the same set designer as him, which obviously, you know, we did certain scenes in Paris, in Bangkok. It was very, uh, yeah, as you see in their series, it switches and changes locations all the time. And it's funny, isn't it? Because it's like a, it's like um, a beautiful South song. Because you know, <laughs> a beautiful South. They always have really sort of happy, sort of rainbow melodies. But if you listen to the words, they're really cutting and and, and full of satire. And yeah, yeah. you know, if you watch the show with the sound down and you don't, you miss out certain scenes. It's like a, it's like a, a funk groove fest that you want to be part of. But of course, it's entirely the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, for me, especially like when I watched episode one, and you have. You first followed the first victim story, Teresa, and it's, you see her kind of the hippie style, the yeah. liberation and yeah, her yeah, purity yeah. meets the, basically the serpent, the kind of the dark cobra. And there's something really, when I read the script, it kind of, you get, I became fascinated by him and kind of quite, it's quite obsessive because he, he really, he's so intoxicating and seductive, yeah. um, which is what makes it so, 
so disturbing. The first scene, you know, when he's being interviewed of the first episode, I mean, that just, yeah. it just hits the gr- ground running, doesn't it? It's just so good. You think, what is this about? And I said to my wife, I said, how is it? I said, babe, you've got to watch it because she goes to sleep later than I do. She says, really? I said, no, no. I said, it's, it's, it's Chernobyl good. It's, it's really fantastic. Uh, so congratulations to you and everybody involved in it. Now, your character, she's French or, you know... Um, yeah, exactly. But th- there are two of her, in a way, because she has an alter ego. Yeah. 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 So that's... And again, in real life, because there's loads of tapes that I got to listen to for research of her in prison... Uh, the real Charles Sobrage and the, uh, the real Marie Andre in prison. So she'd never left Canada. Like she was really, um, I mean, she was quite devout uh, Catholic and grew up in Quebecois, like uh, grew up in, um, in Quebec and had never really traveled before. And upon meeting Charles Sobrage, within three weeks, she was drugging people. So, yeah, the kind of the line of is she a victim and how much of a accomplice was she is, mm. is what we, what we, uh, investigate throughout the series. Yeah. And again, you know, that uh, it has that pre pre um title uh to it that says all conversations are imagined. But oh the imagi- yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. but oh the imagining of these conversations. Who's the guy that wrote it? What did he what's he done before? Uh, Richard Waller. He did uh Ripper Street. He's well I mean it's just it's as good as it gets, isn't it, for telly? Yeah, I mean as well and uh, for the I mean when I got some scripts I read the first six in a row and I had all of the research material and cuttings and images of them um, and as well she kept the name Monique throughout her days in prison like she kept that name the name that Charles Sabrage gave her and the, the kind of the character that he built around like she kept that for the rest of her life which I think was really really telling really telling um, yeah. but yeah Richard had I mean the scripts were so incredible and then obviously he had to uh you know alter and change things so to make it work in tring and to make the series still um exist well i think i think it's awesome awesome i really do so well done thank you no you're very welcome um what do you do what's happened since 8 p.m last night in your world (laughs) well (laughs) i've been at home no you know what i mean with regards to the near future yeah, uh, not not much to be honest. Um, yeah, just kind of mentally preparing that this is this is where we are until you know come come March. Yeah. Um, but yeah, staying at home. Staying at home. Plenty to plenty of good stuff to watch on the telly. Thank heaven. Exactly. Uh, yeah. From you and your lot. Right, Jenna Coleman, the Serpent, uh, the Serpent episode three of eight Sunday nine pm BBC One. But of course, BBC iPlayer is where you can go to watch them all today. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This is the Best of the Breakfast Show podcast of 2021 with Sky from Virgin Radio. We've heard from a whole host of tip-top guests, but can you believe it? There's still so much more to come. On the way, the dashing Tom Hughes gets us cackling with delight over the second series of Sky One's A Discovery of Witches. Super chef Hugh Fernley Whittingstall whips our diets into shape with his new book, Eat Better Forever. Super cool brainiac columnist Bryony Gordon wows us with witticisms from her new book, No Such Thing as Normal, which is awesome. And the dynamic plant-based duo of Stephen and David Flynn, aka The Happy Pair, wants you to get your veggies ready with their new cookbook, The Happy Health Plan. All of that and more still to come. So let's get right back to the action. Dapper Dave, who is next? He's the Brit busting his way into Hollywood one powerhouse performance at a time. He stars in the incredible new movie One Night in Miami, which drops on Amazon Prime Video next Friday. Ladies and gents, please welcome a man that puts in the most Malcolm excellent of performances. It's Kingsley <laughs> Benadir. Good morning, Kingsley. How are you doing, Chris? OK, I'm very well. How are you? I'm pretty good. What an introduction. Thank you. Congratulations on this new creation of yours and your pals. One Night in Miami. Amazon Prime video released next Friday, uh, week tomorrow, 15th of Jan. Um, so did this night actually happen? Did this event actually happen? It did. It did. And I think that was, you know, Kemp's inspiration was finding out that this night did happen and, and his sort of wondering, you know, what they may or may have not spoken about. But yeah, it did happen. And uh I think the next morning Cash came out and announced that he was changing his name and converting to the Nation of Islam. And, you know, within a year, Sam and Malcolm would both, you know, sadly be dead. Um, But, yeah, this night happened. No one knows what they actually said, but that was the inspiration. Okay, so the night in question is... uh... This is a story of what happened, uh, what might have happened when Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, uh, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke find themselves in the same room in in, in a night. What was the year? What was going on at the time? This is February the 25th, 1964. I speak for Malcolm, really, because obviously he's the character I play and the character who I sort of I studied in depth. And I feel like this is a really interesting time for Malcolm because there were so many monumental changes going on for him in terms of his thinking and his situation with the Nation of Islam. I felt like there was a really strong sense, I think my research showed me anyway, that he was he was being pushed out of the nation in a very real way. He was currently on a he was on a suspension on this night and his relationship with Elijah Muhammad, who was his father figure and mentor really, was essentially crumbling. Um I think there was a also a really strong feeling that the FBI were 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 really onto him and and uh and yeah and I think his politics and his religious beliefs were were really going for a, a massive shift so I think we're meeting Malcolm in this film at a really interesting point and I think for me that was like so much of the so much of what I found appealing about this because obviously there's a performance of Malcolm X that is iconic and you know I wanted to make sure that and that that this opportunity or this Malcolm was going to be something very different and a Malcolm that we that we, we haven't seen before. And so much of that was to do with the vulnerability, not just of him, but of all of these men together. Like this is a Malcolm in private with his friends sharing and laughing and discussing. And so much of the Malcolm that we know is in the media and so often in response to the most like hideous uh, racial injustices and you're often often the, the clips that we have of Malcolm on, on YouTube are, uh, are always him in response to like 
just racist white America, basically. So this was a really interesting opportunity where I thought, oh man, we can show Malcolm as, as a dad and Malcolm as a friend and Malcolm as a, you know, a kind, gentle human being that he was. One of the most amazing parts of my research was uh, an interview, um, dear friend of Malcolm, Malcolm's Dick Gregory that I read and, and he sort of describes Malcolm in a really different way. And uh, he said that Malcolm was actually a very sweet and bashful man, a really good humored and the, and the lacerating demagogue that we all know is really a character that he slipped in and out of, but really wasn't the sum total of who he was. And I, that sort of blew my mind and gave me full permission to, to dive in and explore that sort of more fragile, vulnerable side of, of Malcolm. I thought one of the most um, telling scenes in it, the whole uh, movie, was when he has to flee his own house because it's being set on fire and he's, he's, you know, he's semi-naked, he's with his family, um, their, their lives are in great danger, as his life always was, and ultimately we know what happened as far as that's concerned, but he was frightened, he was, he was fearful, he was cowering over the opposite side of the street, you know, with a gun in hand, almost no, not knowing really what he was going to do with it, if he had to do anything with it at all. No, if the, sec if the second bomb had gone through that window, it would have landed on his two-year-old daughter. Yeah. Like, there's an interview on YouTube that I studied in depth of Malcolm, maybe nine or ten, maybe tw 24 hours after that incident. And he's, he's very heavily drugged up from, you know, painkillers or the sleeping pills that he was taking and, and apologizing for how he looked because his clothes still smelt of smoke and everything was burnt in the house. Crazy. Like, it's crazy. And also, Malcolm's experience with fires started a lot earlier. His, his dad was murdered by the, 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 the Black Legion or, you know, some white supremacist group. And his house was also bombed when he was a kid. So, like his his experience of, of racism is so was so deeply profound. Yeah. Like, but that scene was a really powerful scene to like to think about and reflect on and film. And it was it was a tricky night because we had we had the little girls and they 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 just wanted to have a good time and they they found their own friendship and we were trying it was it was really tricky to get them into the state of like you know you know panic and panic fear and that fear. we needed. Yeah. yeah. But Regina Regina did a fantastic job of of of. Uh, of freaking them out. Well, look at you now. So, so Malcolm X one day, Barack Obama the next. Uh, Kingsley um, now <laughs> thirty-four years old, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Kingsley's career started on stage, including plays with Mark Rylance's "Much Ado About Nothing" at the Old Vic, alongside legends Vanessa Redgrave and James Earl Jones. Do you feel like you might have graduated by now? <laughs> graduated. From Graduated from what drama school? Just from generally being, you know, a junior on the block, a new kid on the block. To where are you? You know, if acting was a school, um, which grade are you in now? I'm just starting off, Chris. That's how I feel. <laughs> I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm just at the beginning of learning, and like you know, so so much, so much, so much of this job is just like trying to survive yep. and just trying to like make a living. And if you're lucky enough to get to think about you know, choice of character or type of job that you want to do. Yeah. Like, that's just such a huge achievement. And I feel like just maybe in the last few months, I think this sort of connection with Regina and Malcolm, I'm, I'm kind of starting to, you know, the material that's coming in is sort of changing slowly and getting better. And, the, <laughs> you know, the conversations with directors are, uh, you know, are starting to increase a little bit. But just in terms of acting and process, like, I definitely feel like, yeah, I know, you know, just as much or just as little as I did 10, 10 years ago when I left drama school. Well, it's a very healthy attitude, young man. Keep it up. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well done, pal. Thanks for being on the show. 
My pleasure. Okay, Kingsley Benadir, One Night in Miami is brilliant. Amazon Prime Video uh, next Friday. That's when it's released on the 15th of Jan. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. He's perfect as Prince Albert and you'll soon be marvelling at his Christopher Marlowe. He joins the cast of A Discovery of Witches for Season 2, which starts tonight at 9pm on Sky 1. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a witch and he's here to scratch it. It's the dashing Tom Hughes. Oh, it's very good. Morning, Tom. Morning, Chris. How are you doing? Very you well. Right? How are you? Yeah, I'm well, man. Yeah, really good, thanks. Really good. good. Uh, congratulations on this. How was it for you, a discovery of witches? Yeah, it was great. It was wicked. I mean, I mean, I joined just for the second series, so obviously stepping into that, you kind of, kind of, you got to want to kind of hit the ground running. But um, yeah, it's like a big family, the show, and they were incredibly welcoming. So it was wicked. I loved it. And you haven't yet seen yourself in it, I'm hearing. No, I haven't, no. I mean, I've, I've done, you know, little bits in the kind of edit suite and things like that, but no, I haven't seen the, the finished article, shall we say. Right, for people who don't know what it is, can you tell them? Yeah, so, well, listen, they've still got 11 hours, so they can binge watch season one <laughs> if they want to, but um, uh, in a nutshell, it kind of, you know, we're living in a modern world in season one, and there's witches and demons and vampires that live in that world alongside humans, and we kind of chart the story of um, Diana Bishop, who is a witch, but kind of suppressed in that instinct within her and she summons this book at the start of season one that kind of has all the origins of the species in terms of witches, demons and vampires and that alerts the whole supernatural world to her power and also the power of this book and you go on this tumultuous kind of amazing story through that and the main protagonist alongside her is this vampire played by Matthew Good with the character is also called Matthew in the show and he becomes obsessed with her and then there's this amazing kind of blossoming love story with a kind of Romeo and Juliet element of you know, then unrequ- well, not unrequited love, but kind of love against all odds, if you like. Yeah. And then at the end of that se- season, again, if people want to binge it, don't want to give it away, but they kind of flee to a different time and they land back at the start of season two in the 1590s. And Matthew's character, Matthew, back has lived right through that period. And so as he lands, we meet myself playing Christopher Marlowe, who's a friend of Matthew's, but the Matthew he knows has gone to Scotland for two weeks but has turned back up as a completely different version of himself and uh, kind of sets the cat among the pigeons, shall we say. Because <laughs> I watched it last night. There's so much going on, it's brilliant. Uh, now, Matthew's character, who is a vampire, or a werelock, um, he's his, called Matthew, Matthew Good with an E, and Matthew in the show, uh, the vampire. He also feeds on his wife, doesn't he? That's the thing. And they have to be careful that nobody twigs onto this. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, he's been a vampire, he's been alive for so long, you know, I think it's like 1,500 years. Yeah. He's kind of, he's kind of learned to control his urges. But obviously, you know, being a vampire, he has the thing called bloodlust and gets blood, blood rage as well at times. And, and he needs to feed. And the more that he kind of, the more he falls passionately kind of attracted to Diana, the more that kind of bloodlust rises within him and the more he's kind of forced to try and control himself. Right. And so they, they're trying to find their way through that love between them while keeping each other safe and also... You know, being aware that that could, like I said, set a cat amongst the pigeons, you know. Well, and also 16th century London, you know, that's not that's not difficult on the eye. What was it like being in it for a bit? I'm mean, unreal, man. I mean, we were shoot, we shot in Cardiff and um, there was a place in, in Plasmacken, which is like an old kind of, it's like a farm. And, and, and uh, our, our production designer turned it into the 1590s. So you, you just, you walk up this kind of muddy track and you, you go through, you know, all the kind of the, the light rigs and all of that. And then you, you go through a double door and there you are, you're completely transported back. And the magic of that for us was that you could, you could move around. There was cobbled streets, there was houses, there were doors that opened into rooms and, and Kit's dwellings were above a pub 
within it. So I kind of felt like, you know, when you stepped on set, you were, you were transported already. You kind of, <laughs> kind of made your job easier, you know? So cool. And um, the costumes, I mean, Matthew Good, he scrubs up well, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, but, you know, he always does, doesn't he? He's very he always handsome. does. I mean, like... He seems yeah, to be getting he was, younger. What if, yeah, he, what, no, if, what, if, what if he's really a vampire? What if Matthew Good with an E is really actually a vampire? I mean, I know he's not, but I've got to say in scenes, like, it was quite, like, you know, all the kind of moments when, when Matthew, hmm. the character, goes through blood rage, you know, yeah. when I watched the first season before I was, when you were stepping into it, I, you kind of assume a lot of that is CGI, and of course there is certain amounts of CGI in the show, but when you're acting with Matthew, it's quite staggering, because when, when the character goes through those bits, you realise that 95, 99% of it is him, and it's breathtaking what he can do, it's, it's really, I've always been a fan of Matthews, and I've been able to work with him a couple of times, which is great, and step back in and do that and was 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 wicked man he's, he's a great guy uh, no well it takes one to know one so you're saying that matthew good in real life isn't a vampire because you 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 were a vampire at school weren't you you were an actual vampire at school how oh, do you know that yeah well i was yeah that was my first ever job well job come on i was 11 <laughs> years old what we're talking about but I, I i wasn't like i wasn't really a film fan growing up it wasn't like a choice necessarily i was just into kind of music and, and football you know i started playing the guitar when i was really young and then when i got to high school I kind of stopped playing for a bit because I started learning classical guitar. That's how I got into it. And then, um, I don't know, everyone was playing Oasis and I kind of felt like Spanish romance wasn't really cutting the mustard anymore. So I stopped playing. There was a teacher at school who said, look, will you, do you want to come and do this play? Because you've, you know, you've, you've been on stage playing in bands and stuff, I think you'd be able to do it. And I was like, no, I, I, no, definitely not. And he went, you get two weeks off school. I was like, yeah, wicked, I'll okay, do it. Done. And then, and then I, <laughs> I, went and, I went and played Dracula, yeah, in this play. Well, so I guess my first role was a vampire. Well, yeah. good. Uh, well, the first season, I'm sure you know this, but the first season of A Discovery of Witches uh, is rated 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is just off the charts. And so you'll be watching season two, starring yourself along your, alongside your pals tonight with who? I'll be on my own, mate. I'll just be watching it at home, you know, as as lockdown is here. Is so there a little I'll, furry I'll friend in the background that we? Is that is that, is that a car alarm? Well, I thought, I thought I'd come in. I thought I'd come in the garden just to kind of get a bit of a, a wake up with a cup of tea. And there's a dog going nuts. I think he's jealous. Not your dog. To talk. No, Not my okay. dog. No, I don't have a dog now. Well, Tom, so just be me. Just be me with a bottle of bottle of wine. Maybe that feels quite apt for the show. All right, and, mate. Um, yeah, I'll enjoy it. Yeah. Well, well done, Tom. It's lovely to talk to you again. Come and see us whenever you can, as soon as you can. Nice one, bud. Take it easy. All the best. All right, pal. Well done. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. She's learned lessons from her mental illness and packaged them up for the benefit of your mental wellness. Her new book, No Such Thing as Normal, is out now. And here with a wealth of mental health help is the coolest columnist around. It's the always brilliant Bryony Gordon. Good morning, Bryony. Good morning. Wow. Could you... Could you... Wake me up with that every morning. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll send Dave round. I'll have him washed and sent to you. No, not allowed, of course. Uh, no such thing as normal. What my mental illness has taught me about mental wellness. Brandy Gordon, a brand new book, A Practical Guide to Mental Health. Uh, now, Brandy, this interview and this show has interrupted your the writing of your column for tomorrow's Telegraph. Now, that's a deadline, Brandy. Yes, but it's fine. It's easy. I'd rather be talking to you, to be honest. I've got all day. I don't have to file it till midday. Is so right? It's easy. Yeah, it's easy. Okay. It's not... <laughs> I'm just going to write about the book, actually. Good, so good. I'm going to I'm going to use it to plug the book. Well, well done, congratulations. <laughs> uh, before we go any further, do you really go to bed on a bed of nails? So, uh, sometimes I have this thing called yeah, like an acupuncture mat. Right. And 
it's really, I know it doesn't sound relaxing, but it's one of the best things I do for my well-being. You could order them off Amazon for like 20 quid. Right. And they are, if I can say the word, almost orgasmic. Fantastic. Okay, because you mentioned page 36. Uh, you haven't come here to read and rant about uh, meditation, or nor do I want to write a rant about meditation. The practice of mindfulness and meditation are tremendous, and I will never ever go to, uh, do down anything that makes people happy, especially not when I lie down on a bed of nails several times a week. I'm like, what is that about? Now I know. It's Yeah, they're fantastic. They, are, they really are. They sound a bit kind of like hippie-ish, but they're really good. I love I've it. discovered it during the first lockdown. Uh, now, this is, again, a very useful book. Um, it's, it's like a sort of snack box of things that you've sort of come across and that you've used, you've employed, you've tested out for us so we don't have to. Uh, but you also talk about making room for our emotions. And you talk about the fact that people with mental health challenges seem to have fared pretty well you know, um, considering mm. everything uh, during the COVID um, pandemic because they're sort of used to turbulence. Yeah, so that was what I got the idea from the book because in the run-up to the first lockdown, I I found that I found it, it was obviously it was not easy, but I took it in my stride. Whereas the people that had previously taken life in their stride and not had any kind of mental health crisis really struggled. And I realised then that a lot of the things that I had thought were kind of flaws and failures in my life, like the OCD, depression, alcoholism, were actually more like super superpowers. Like I had learned so much. And I'd, I don't know about you, but... I. I, well, I, I can't speak for you, obviously, but anyone listening, like, I don't know, as someone who's experienced mental illness, yeah. I have been preparing for the end of the world since I was like nine. Yeah. And so when the end of the world, as we knew it happened, I was like, actually, this is OK. And it was it was like, I'm going through this with everyone, I, you know, compared to a lockdown in your own head, mm. which is you know, what depression is like, it's, it was it was OK. But so it gave me the idea that I wanted to like get all of the, you know, we should actually be looking to people that have experienced mental illness for advice, which is what happening to me. It was like this curious inversion of norms where people were asking me for advice. I was like, what? Um, and I was like, actually, I have learned a lot through this illness. I have learned a lot about wellness. And so I wanted to kind of put it all in a book. What are the kind of things? Because you get, there's a lot of mental health advice out there that's kind of quite vague and woolly, isn't there? That isn't actually, you know, it's sort of meditate or, you know, do mindfulness. But trying to do that when you're in crisis is like asking someone in a lead suit to go for a swim. You yep. know, it's, it's really hard. So I was like, what are the basic things that would have helped me the first time I had OCD when I was 11 and I couldn't leave the house for three months. Do you know what I mean? And yep. it was, it's, uh, so I wanted to get those basic things in, but also I work with a lot of mental health professionals to create a kind of central chapter, which is all about how to ask for help because we hear so much about how poor mental health provision is in this country, which in itself isn't actually that helpful if you're in crisis. So I wanted to like, because there is help there. So I spoke to lots of GPs and doctors and counsellors about how best to access the system and, and what and what there is available to you and what the kind of waiting time should be. Um, so there's that kind of practical element to it too. Yeah, it's very important. And the way you describe it there, it sounds heavy, but that's because, as always, Brian's done the heavy lifting for us. And from all that hard homework that you've just been hearing about there, she's distilled it all down. And it's once again, it's gorgeous, full of expletives, full of uh, Trump-esque <laughs> style uppercase. Can't get enough of that, Brian. Keep that coming. That's perfect. <laughs> you know, and you talk about breathing in there. You talk about the sleeping in there. I love the, the chapter on getting out of your own way. Yes. 
Well, because I talk about how I've realized that all of my mental health issues, I describe them as like little goblins in my head, right? Yeah. And the, the voice of the goblin is the voice of your mental illness is incredibly similar to your own. So you may feel that you don't, you obviously feel that you don't want to get out, get out of bed. You don't want to get up. You don't want to, you've got to basically do the opposite of what you want to do yep. when you're in mental health crisis and get out of your own way. And it's, it's starting in those simple things. Like even if it's just right now, if someone's listening and they don't want to get out of bed it's like get out of bed and go get yourself a glass of water that's all you have to do do you know what i mean it's those tiny little steps um of getting out of your own way but it's really getting out of the way of the the goblin in your head so to speak right get back to your day job off you go thank you Bryony. <laughs> thank you for having me well done you're always welcome welcome no such thing as normal Bryony gordon it's out now and it is fabulous seriously fabulous the best of the chris evans breakfast show with sky on virgin radio he's the culinary king determined to kickstart your new year diet in style his new book eat better forever is out now and here to give us a delightful belly full in the most mindful of ways is the ravishing rascal of River Cottage himself. It's Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Good morning, Hugh. Good morning. Good, Good morning. morning. How are you today? You all right? Yeah, I'm very well. Often these books here are all about the title, Eat Better Forever. That is a grand claim. I love it. It's so sort of, it's so sort of confident. And as you begin to read the book, I sort of agree with you. Eat better forever. Let's do it. Um, your seven ways to transform your diet. Uh, give us the headlines. Well, the headlines is that this is not a single fixed diet. We, we you know, publishers love to come up with one concept. You put all your eggs in one healthy eating or weight loss basket. For me, that makes the idea of success or failure very binary, and it can be quite stressful. And actually, healthy eating isn't a, a, a binary or, or one big idea thing. We know quite a lot about what's healthy now. So I wanted to lay out seven strategies that all support each other. Even one or two of them will be really helpful. Uh, but if you do, it's like making seven little New Year's resolutions instead of one big one. And, you know, you, you concentrate on two or three of them at a time. And over time, they look after you really well. So it's just much more sustainable approach. Well, it's much more achievable and sustainable, isn't it? That's the thing. Absolutely. That's exactly the idea. All right. So retrain your retrain your sweet tooth is here page 104 now vasos he seems to be unfolding as the main subject of this interview he gave up sugar four days ago um that's a whole different story but he could really do with this so give us the basics on retraining your sweet tooth that's really interesting that vasos has given up sugar and i hope he gets on really well with that my approach would probably be to dial down the sugar a little bit to do it gradually rather than go completely cold turkey on it um, and I mean, I have a super sweet tooth. I used to be the pudding chef at the River Cafe many years ago, making tarts and cakes and ice creams. And I still love to do home baking and all my family loves a treat. But recently, one thing I've discovered is you can take pretty much 20% of the sugar out of any traditional cake or biscuit recipe. And you know what? Nobody even notices. You can start swapping in that light wholemeal flour instead of white flour. Again, people love it. So there's lots you can do to kind of hole up your treaty baking. In fact, the last chapter of the, the recipe chapter of the book is all about delicious treats that are not laden with sugar. They're not sugar-free, but they've got much more whole ingredients, nuts and seeds, but there's some chocolatey treats there. Uh, there's a lovely seedy cake that's got all kinds of good things in it, ground almonds, wholemeal flour. And, but this is not kind of old-school 70s, 
you know, brown rice and lentil stuff. It's delicious home baking, but just made a bit holer. No, I agree. I concur. Uh, mindful drinking and mindful eating. Which would you like to take on those first? Well, of course, they're really connected. Mindfulness is the seventh of my seven ways. And, and you said, you know, you used the phrase woo-woo. You know, these things can be interpreted as being a little bit hippy-dippy. But all mindfulness means in the context of food and drink is that while you're eating or even while you're cooking and preparing food, you're thinking about the food. You know, you are, you are with the food. You're with your eating. You're not – so because we do an awful lot of mindless eating. We, we, we're eating and snacking and grazing while thinking about or doing something completely different. But if we take a little bit of time out when we eat to be with the food, we can relish it a little bit more. A little bit less of it goes a little bit further. And this, this is the wrapping, if you like, for the rest of my six strategies. The mindfulness is really, really important. And it is, it's so important that once you get into it, you can't get out of it. Um, it's one of those traps that you get into that does you a favour and you think, no, this is a, a jail cell that I don't mind you know, a life sentence in because I used to love a wine gum right here. I used to love a wine gum and I'd get a wine gum, you know, I'd get five wine gums on the side and um, I'd be reading a book. And since I've become more mindful, I can't do that anymore. Because I'm not enjoying the wine gum and I'm not enjoying the book. And so I can't do the two things at once because we can't multitask. That's a myth, isn't it? There is no such thing as multitasking. You get task switching. And that, because we can only do one thing at a time as a human being. By, from a binary point of view, as far as our brains is concerned, we are unable, we can trick ourselves into thinking we're multitasking, but we're not. We're just micro task switching. And therefore, if I'm chewing a wine gum and I'm reading a book, I'm, I'm, I can't do the two at the same time. That is impossible. So sometime during the whole process, I'm missing out on one uh, the, uh, because of the other. Yeah, I think that's entirely right. And, you know, I think you're better off taking time out to just maybe have one wine gum and to relish every single chew and suck of that delicious item uh you know second by second yes. uh, and then you'll find that one of one of them has probably done the job that five or six of them used to do oh absolutely absolutely and the whole you know have i got time for the wine gum the contemplation is it the right is it the right day for a wine gum you know that kind of thing and then the investment is massive and even if it's a no at the end of it it's a good no it's a big fat solid no you know or a big fat solid yes and either will do Absolutely. Decisiveness and being with the food is oh, key. With the, food. the other thing that's really interesting about the mindfulness is being mindful about when you're not eating. And Chris, I know you've dabbled with intermittent fasting, haven't you? And yeah. you've, you've, you've versions of that where you where you do all your, you know, you, we call it the, the 16 8, where, where you do your eight, you do your eating between maybe. 12 noon and 8 in the evening. Mm -hmm. And I do that sometimes. I put in, for me, fasting, again, it's not a be-all and end-all part of healthy eating. It's not like the single fix, but it is a very useful tool and it can be a turbo boost for some of the other strategies in the book. So for me, mindfulness is, fasting is part of mindfulness and, and being with your hunger and acknowledging that right now you're hungry, but actually you can be hungry for another hour or two before you have to go and find some food. It's a little bit of mindfulness and, and, and tuning in on that feeling that will help you get past and, and let you feel you don't need to reach for a snack at that moment. Yeah, it's all good. It's all very good. Right, Hugh, great book. Well done, pal. Happy New Year to you. 
Happy New Year, guys. Okay, Eat Better Forever. What a title and what a book by Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. They're identical twins, former male models, and a current business phenomenon. Their latest cookbook, The Happy Health Plan, is out now, and they're here with oodles of plant based perfection. Get ready for some Tuck of the Irish. It's the wonderfully happy pair, Stephen and David Flynn. Good morning, boys. <laughs> what a wonderful intro. What an honor, Chris. Well, it's great to talk to you both. I've heard you both before lots of times uh, on various podcasts with Rich and uh, those kind of guys. Uh, how are you doing? How's your Christmas been? What's the story so far for you guys in 2021? Gosh, so far, four days into it, we're, we're making the most of it. You know, it's. It's, uh, we did our training this morning, we had a swim in the sea, and we're delighted to be here. Right, for people who don't know, and there'll be loads of them, so let's educate them. Um, how, how did you two become the happy pair? Did it begin with the open water swimming and this sort of, uh, this sort of casual, um, unofficial swimming club that seemed to garnered momentum? Um, you were both male models, of course. What is your history in catering? Give us a sort of cheat sheet, a 60-second cheat sheet on who you guys are. Okay, 60 seconds. Here we go. We're going to spit it up. So we grew up in a small town in Greystones, all boys family, all boys schools, very masculine upbringing. And um, we ended up, by the time of studying business, like being identical twins, we wanted to, we used to eat a meat and two veg diet. We went on a journey of self-discovery. And through that journey, we kind of, we realized we were really into health, happiness and community. So we started our business, which we call the happy pair with this Walt Disney dream of creating a happier, healthier world and building community. And this this was back in 2004. We left as two meathead jocks and then came back two years later as two idealists that wanted to start a vegetable shop. So, and we st- so, so yeah. the, the transformation, um, it, it, was, it, was there a moment? Was there a moment of epiphany, a realisation? Yeah, I think it was more as soon as we left Greystones and our own social conditioning, we kind of realised that... You know, we wanted to explore and see what else gave us meaning in life. And we found health was hugely important. And we changed a plant-based diet. This is back 20 years ago. And that's been the hallmark. That, that changed so much within our own life. And it kind of forced it, it kind of was the formative thing for us to create the Happy Pair, which was a vegetable shop. And it's grown into also, it's grown arms and legs now. And, kind of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and festivals and retreats and shows as well. Yeah, kind of, it started out with a little vegetable shop. We've kind of, we've three cafes. We have um, about 50 products in about a thousand stores. We've written five best-selling cookbooks. And, and it's all about the same thing as trying to get people to eat more fruit and veg. You know, so it's, it's really, you know, that's the whole emphasis behind everything is trying to inspire people to eat more fruit and veg and live a happier, healthier life. Really. All right, lovely stuff in this one. Uh, straight away, uh, I'm drawn to page 158. Easy miso soup, three ways. I love miso soup. Why is it so good for us? Uh, it's wonderful. It's full of, like, it's very cleansing for toxins. My kids love it as well, which is surprising. So for any parents, it's a great one for kids. It takes five to ten minutes to make, and it's full of flavour, and you can get lots of veg in it. So and miso is something that traditionally over here, we're not used to eating, and it's something that's it's often... The fermented food group is labelled the forgotten food group. But I guess during this pandemic, we're all becoming more aware of the importance of having a strong immune system. And fermented foods and eating fibre-rich foods are so important because 70% of our immune system lives in our gut or our microbiome. Yeah. And, and 9 out of 10 people in the UK don't eat enough fibre and you only get fibre from fruit, veg, beans, legumes and whole grains. Yeah, so, and there's different kinds of fibre, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, there's soluble and unsoluble. But I think... The main thing is like, like for anyone listening, I think the main thing is just to try to eat more fruit and veg. Like it's very straightforward and I think it's, it's applicable to everyone listening. It doesn't have to be 
I'm eating a, whole, a vegan diet. It's literally just try to eat more fruit and veg because the benefits are so plentiful. I guess we've had about 50,000 people from all over the world through our online health plans. And we've seen the benefits so many times just simply eating more fruit and veg. Even, even there on Christmas Eve, I was outside our shop and a guy came up to me and he was probably 65 years old. His name was John. And he said to me, listen, I just did one of your plans and it's changed my life. Myself, my wife, my health improved dramatically. I can now eat loads of food. So it's, you know, it's it's a wonderful thing. Eat, just eating more fruit and veg, that's the name of the game. Yeah, absolutely. We did, uh, for the first time ever, we got a stalk of Brussels sprouts that look like jingle bells, literally. And I didn't know, but you can just throw them in the oven like that as a roast on the stalk. And they look beautiful, oh, don't they? Oh, they do. They look amazing. Like, they're wood, like they really are like a big stack of bells. And I think it, it just helps preserve them a lot more which is brilliant and a nice thing, you know. Um, and for many people listening, they might kind of go, oh, the lads, that, you're just chefs. Like, what are you talking about? We kind of partnered with a lot of doctors and dietitians, And so, so it's kind of rooted in science, the sense of eating yeah. more fruit and veg. And, and even, um, even back last year, we ended up back pre-corona, we ended up uh, forming this thing called the Southwest Plant-Based Challenge, which was down in Devon. It was 79 doctors, which a friend, he wanted to approve the benefit of plant-based diet. So we put 79 doctors on a plant-based diet for four weeks. And we went over there and launched the program, one of our plans. And at the end of it, there was a 27% drop in LDL cholesterol, an average drop of 5 kg in weight. And uh, three quarters of the doctors said that they were going to continue on with a plant-based diet. And 98% said they'd recommend it to their patients. So it's um, it works. Yeah, and great. we're not saying that anyone needs to be a vegan or a vegetarian in anything. It's really, all of us want to wake up and have more energy. Yeah, yeah. We better and it's hard now in lockdown like it really is but it's about like we all want to have better immunities and better mental health and food has such a massive importance to it and we kind of forget this it's easy to kind of get caught in a rut of eating you know processed foods and junk foods and it's it's just such an important thing okay <laughs> boys well done thank you so much uh, how was the swim this morning Cold, cold. It was about it's about six degrees fresh, but so invigorating. Well, hang on a minute. You've been open water swimming for ages. If you think it's cold, God help the rest of us. Vassus has started open water swimming, and he gets trouble with his hands and his feet being cold. Can you get over that without having to wear things? Uh, Well, we just had a foot bath there after it, so that definitely helps. But for for anyone listening, it's something so like glorious about facing that discomfort. Like I always quite like that stoic ideology that like. When you face a bit of discomfort, you can appreciate comfort a lot more. And through a cold shower, getting in the cold sea, suddenly like putting a blanket around me, yeah. I feel like yeah. I deserve this. I've earned I this. deserve yes. my cup of coffee. I deserve my so whatever. Right. So right. And, and the sea might be unrelatable to most people, but it could be a run. It could be a yoga class. It could be anything that you can do to make you feel good that forces you out of your comfort zone. Right. Well, guys, you're awesome. And if you want fuel for any of those uh, pastimes or others that are good for you, the Happy Healthy Plan is out now. And that's the boys live from Ireland, David and Stephen Flynn. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. Thank you so much for listening to this, the podcast of the Virgin Radio Breakfast Show. Don't forget you can subscribe and get it every week from wherever you get your podcast podcast and you will never miss the weekly roundup of all the best bits from our virgin radio breakfast show with sky hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.